We have been speaking around courage for the last four weeks, and we'll do it again this week. Um, we have, uh, our series is called Dig Deep, and it's all about where do we dig deep into? Uh, when it comes to courage, uh, it's as simple as you need to find something deep within yourself. But when we go dig there, we don't find much, and we don't always like what we found. Thank you. Um, see, new sound, man. Uh, <laughs> this happens. So here we are. When we find nothing in ourselves, where do we go? Well, we need to dig into something, and that something is our relationship with God. Uh, our key scripture in this courage theme is pretty much David laying out his succession plan to his son Solomon. And he says in First Chronicles 28 and verse 20, Take courage and do the work. Take courage and do what I have given you to do. Do what God has given you to do. And so um, we've been very, very practical in laying it out and getting very specific in different things and how and where and how do we dig and what do we dig into and how, what do we look at and what do we look at in ourselves and how do we grow into making good, courageous decisions for God on a daily basis. And if you want to listen to all of that, because you can imagine recapping four weeks might be a bit of an issue this morning. Um, if you want to hear some of that, go and listen in on our website, um, bikerschurchmidrand.co.za, or uh, on your favorite podcast app. Um, just look for us, Bikers Church Midrand, and you'll find it there. I'm not going to waste too much time on that. Here we go for this week. I want to start off with this statement. Courage leaves a legacy. Courage leaves a legacy. What's a legacy? It is something that is left behind. Once you are gone or once a person is gone, what is left behind? How is he slash she, she remembered? What do people think when they remember back on that person? And I want to say it's very, very important for us to think about these things. I'm not going to get doom and gloom on you. I'm not going to give a funeral message, I promise. But it's important for us to think, what legacy am I leaving? Is the courageous decisions that I'm making for God in my life leaving a legacy? Am I making courageous decisions in my life that is leaving a godly legacy for those who follow behind me? Life is, if, if, if we fill our lives with courageous godly decisions, we create this platform for those who come after us to actually build upon. We set the next generation up. We set the, the people following us up, not only onto a platform, but actually onto a point of, uh, like, I actually had a good word for this that I couldn't find. Oh, here we go. A point of departure. We kind of give them a springboard into the future, a springboard into faith that is greater than ours, a springboard into more than what we could have ever done. We allow them to stand on our shoulders. And that's kind of the point of a legacy. You see, that, that legacy, that springboard, that platform takes individuals forward, it takes communities forward, and it takes whole societies forward into what God has for them without having to struggle what has been struggled. There's new things, there's better things, there's more amazing things to come. Paul encourages Timothy with this, and he, he writes to him um, in the second letter that he writes to him, to, to Timothy 1 and verse 14, he, it says this, through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard 
the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. Carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. Goes on a little bit later on in the letter, he writes, you have heard, you've heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who are able to pass them on to others. What are these things that you're supposed to pass on? That precious truth that has been deposited in your heart. Paul pretty much writing to Timothy saying, love God, love others, and teach those others to love God and love others. So they can teach those more others to love God and love others and so on and so forth. And this is the way we wash our hands. No, this is the way that God's kingdom grows. This is the way that we go forward. All right. So there's great lessons. Keeping this in mind, there's great lessons that we can learn from the Old Testament kings um, in the Bible. Uh, you've, some of you have read things like Kings and Chronicles, and, and you kind of got stuck at so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, and this king killed a lot of people, and that king killed even more people, and this is gloom and doom stuff, isn't it? But there's a lot for us to learn from these kings and from their lives. One of these kings... Um, is a king, is one of Judah's kings. Um, his name is Hezekiah. Now let me set the scene for you into Hezekiah's story. The kingdom of Israel is split in two. The northern kingdom, or they kept calling themselves Israel, and the southern kingdom, they called themselves Judah. Some of you were like, what do you mean the kingdom was split in two? I promise you it's there. Go and read it. First and second kings, first and second chronicles, even Isaiah has a big Lots to read there, lots of interest. If you are a guy, you should be reading that. You know? if, you, if you like blood and guts movies, that's where you should be, all right? Just saying. Now, the book of First and Second Kings um, account for these kingdoms. And each kingdom, uh, after they'd split, had 20 kings. The northern kingdom had 20 kings. The southern kingdom had 20 kings. And the writer of, of kings, he kind of had a set of, a list of, kind of criteria as to how did this king do. His criteria was this. Did the king worship God, the God of Israel alone? Did they rid the nation of idolatry? And were they faithful to God's covenant? Three things. Did they worship the God of Israel alone? Did they rid the nation of idolatry? And were they faithful to God's covenant? Now, unfortunately, the northern kingdom had zero out of 20 that actually made the criteria. That's pretty rough, isn't it? And then the southern kingdom, they did a little bit better. They had eight kings out of 20 that actually made up the, that actually got to tick these three boxes in, in the criteria of being a good king. Now, fortunately, Hezekiah was one of these good kings. If we can, we can go and read in 2 Kings 18, verses 3 to 7 kind of describes what kind of a guy he was. It says this, 2 Kings 18, verses 3 to 7. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. This is Hezekiah. Just as his, ancestors, just as his ancestor David had done, he removed the pagan shrines, smashed the sacred pillars, cut down the Azure poles. He broke the bronze serpent that Moses had made, because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. The bronze serpent was called, that word, 
Nehushtan. Now, it was so bad. Idolatry was so bad that even the things that were supposed to remind people of God, they started to worship the things. God had set up this, this pole with the snake on top, or Moses had. God told him to, God instructed him to. And it, when people got bit by snakes, they looked at the post and they got healed. And people started worshiping the post and forgetting about God. So that's kind of how far the, the nation had gone down. It continues to say in that portion, Hezekiah trusted the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him amongst all the kings of Judah, either before or after his time. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything, and he carefully obeyed all the commandments that the Lord had given Moses. So the Lord was with him, and Hezekiah was successful in everything that he did. Very, very important things there. Hezekiah trusted the Lord in everything. There was no one like him, before him or after him. And then Hezekiah was successful in everything he did. And that's kind of the legacy that, that we want to leave, isn't it? That we trusted God in everything. That there was no one like me, either before me or after me. You know, that's kind of nice, isn't it? You, know, you see the trap there. And we'll get to the trap. Most importantly, Hezekiah was successful in everything he did. Why? Because he trusted God first. Now, King Hezekiah brings reform. He uh, breaks, he reopens the temple. His predecessor had actually closed the temple doors and uh, nailed it shut with boards um, so that nobody could get in there. That's how bad it was. He destroyed all the idols. He took the idols out of the temple. He reinstated Passover celebrations. He got the priests to purify themselves. They purified the temple. They got the people to come and worship God. He went so far as to go, I know that the kingdom is split, but hey, um, northern kingdom, Israel, if you guys want to come and worship with us, please come. He sent them letters and said, please come and worship with us as we reinstate the Passover celebrations. They didn't come. But at least he did it, all right? So he turns the nation of, Israel, of Judah back to God. He has this honest and growing relationship with God as you read through it. He has an awesome prayer life as you read through it. And he has this complete dependence on God that makes him successful in everything that he does. Now, Hezekiah went and he looked at the past and he saw this is, this is how it looked when it went well with Israel. We honored God in everything. We didn't have idols. We kept to the celebrations that we should have. We worshiped only God. And then he took it into his life and he said, I will obey what God has told Moses and life will be good for us. And so about four years into his reign, the Assyrian kingdom. Now, the Assyrians at that time was the world power. Um, next came up the Babylonians, and then came Rome and all those places. But at that time, it was the Assyrians. And the Assyrians had made their way into the ancient Near East, and they were attacking the northern kingdom. Uh, so Samaria was under attack. The siege started, and two years later, the siege ended with Samaria or Israel pretty much just giving up. Now, a siege isn't quite as cool as what you think. Unfortunately, there was no catapults. There was no charging the gates with horses and, 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 and swords. They pretty much just cut food and water off from the city and waited for the people to either come out or die in the city. 
So it's not that exciting. I'm sorry that it's not that exciting. I set that up quite a bit, didn't I? Um, it wasn't that exciting. But here we go. All right. But Northern Kingdom gets taken into captivity in Assyria. Assyria turns their attention to Judah and says, we're coming for you guys. We want to take your cities over as well. And so as they're heading down, they're attacking the northern cities of Judah. Hezekiah sends a delegation to find out what Assyria wants. Do they, do they want tribute? Do they want money? Do they want the people? Or do they just want to wipe them out? The bad news is Assyria just wants to wipe them out. Now, Hezekiah goes to God and he prays. And he sends word to Isaiah the prophet of, at the time. Because conventional, con, con, conventional wisdom says that God has to save us here because we can't save ourselves here. He starts getting ready and he gets the, gets the, um, the army in place. And he encourages the, encourages the people with this in 2 Chronicles 32 verses 6 to 8. He says, he appointed military officers over the people and assembled them and assembled them before him in the square at the city gate. Then Hezekiah encouraged them by saying, be strong and courageous. Have we heard that before? Hey, over and over again in his past. Don't be afraid or discouraged because the king of Assyria, because of the king of Assyria or his mighty army, for there is a power far greater on our side, saying, we have God on our side. He may have a great army, but they are merely men. We have the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles for us. I just love that. We have the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles for us. He actually prophetically speaks into what's about to happen. Hezekiah's words greatly encourages the, encouraged the people. So then God comes and he literally destroys the Assyrian army. 185,000 in a night. Judah didn't have to wiggle a finger. God came and did it on their behalf. All right? So the attack is stopped, quelled, just like that. And it forces this Assyrian king, this world power, to turn around and head back home, to turn tail and run. So we read about that in 2 Chronicles 32, verses 22 and 23. It's a little bit on from what we just read. It says, that is how the Lord res rescued Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from, the ki from King Sennacherib of, Israel, uh, yeah, of Assyria and from all the others who threatened them. So not only did God quell this attack, but all future attacks were stopped in the same way. From then on, uh, there was peace throughout the land. From then on, King Hezekiah became highly respected among all surrounding nations, and many gifts for the Lord arrived in, at Jerusalem with valuable presents for King Hezekiah too. So here, God is taking care of his people and the king. God gets honored, but the king also gets honored. Fantastic. His legacy is rising. His, his star is rising. All right. Right after this, right after this wonderful victory over Assyria that they didn't even have to raise a finger, Hezekiah gets extremely ill. And so Isaiah comes to visit him. And we read about this in 
2 Kings 20, verses 1 through 6. It says, About that time, Hezekiah became deathly ill, and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to visit him. He gave the king this message. This is what the Lord says. Set your affairs in order, for you are going to die. You will not recover from this illness. That's not a great news, is it? It's like you've just won this wonderful victory, like Assyria is slain. We're going forward, guys. Um, by the way, you're going to die in a couple of days. Not great. But it continues to say this. When Hezekiah heard this, now listen to his prayer life. He turned, he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I have always been faithful to you and have served you single-mindedly, always doing what pleases you. Then he broke down and he wept bitterly. It's amazing. No song and dance, nothing fancy. Just turn to God and pray, Lord, this is where I am. I've served you and that's all I've known. And I hope you remember that. And he cried. Continues. But before Isaiah had left the middle courtyard, this message came to him from the Lord. Go back to Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of your ancestor David says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. And three days from now, you will get out of bed and go to the temple of the Lord. You're healed. Why? Because you have faith in the right thing. Goes on. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will rescue you and this city from the king of Assyria, and I will defend the city for my own honor and for the sake of my servant, David. So Hezekiah is healed, and success and blessing follows. Now, the Babylonian king, which is the kind of Assyria's over here, Babylonia's is coming for them, all right? They, they're the next rising power. The Babylonian king sees this is an opportunity. The king was sick, and he's better. So what do we do? We send him gifts, and we say, hey, we're so happy that you're better. Join our side. So he does that. He sends an envoy and gets, um, gets to King Hezekiah, and King Hezekiah does a very interesting thing that is kind of out of character for him. King Hezekiah receives all this tribute and honor and everything, and then he proceeds to show these Babylonians everything. All the treasury, all the armor, all the resources, shows them everything, and kind of walks around and says, look at that. Aren't we just so cool and so amazing? Isaiah hears about this, and he isn't very, very happy. So Isaiah goes and he speaks to the king. And 2 Kings 21 from verse 14 says, Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and he, said, and he asked, him, asked him, What did those men want? Where were they from? Hezekiah replied, They came from the distant land of Babylon. What did they see in your palace? Isaiah asked. And this gets scary. They saw everything, Hezekiah replied. I showed them everything I own. All... Mark the words, everything I own, all my royal treasuries. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, listen to this message from the Lord. The time is coming when everything in your palace, all the treasures you stored up, by, all the treasures stored up by your ancestors until now will be carried off to Babylon and nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your very own sons 
will be taken away to exile. They will become eunuchs who will serve in the palace of Babylon's king. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, this message you have given me from the Lord is good. Now, why? What's wrong with you? How is that a good message? Something changed, hasn't it? Something's different. Continues to say, for the king was thinking, at least there will be peace and security during my lifetime. This guy who is living for the kingdom, living for God, looking to do everything for other people, suddenly turns his gaze inward. Look at my treasuries. Look at my wealth. And he gets given this this message that he's been given before. You're going to die in a couple of days. What did he do then? He turned and he prayed and God heard. And here he stands before a choice again. He can turn and he can pray and God can hear, but he doesn't. He says, at least there will be peace in my lifetime. I'll get off scot-free. And the thing that changed in 2 Chronicles, this story gets repeated three times in Kings, Chronicles, and in Isaiah. But in 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 31, it says this about that time. It says, however, when, when ambassadors arrived from Babylon to ask about the remarkable events that had taken place in the land, God withdrew from, from Hezekiah in order to test him and to see what was really in his heart. And what did God find in his heart? Pride. The one thing that trips up king after king after king. So Hezekiah was shown to have pride in his heart. And he had this opportunity to repent. Right there when Isaiah was speaking to him. But he doesn't. And the last thing we hear from Hezekiah, because that's where his story ends. He says, at least there will be peace and security in my lifetime. I don't really care what goes on after me, is what he says in short. And this from the guy who earlier on in the story we read that there was no one like him amongst all the kings of Judah before or after. But he leaves no legacy. He leaves no no platform for the next generation to go forward on. He leaves no springboard, definitely. All he leaves is a pitfall. And unfortunately, that pitfall came in the, in the form of the next king. Because the next king was Manasseh. And Manasseh by far was the worst king that Judah had ever had. He reinstated idolatry. He rebuilt the shrines. He, in fact, sacrificed two of his own children He practices sorcery, he practices divination, he institutes witchcraft as a good idea. And his little epitaph in in the book of, of Kings actually says that Judah was more wicked than the pagan nations at that stage. From a nation serving God under a king that there was no one like him before, there was no one like him after, to an absolute mess. Why? Because the king didn't do what he was supposed to do. Because he allowed pride to creep into his heart. Now, I know you're sitting there and going, yes, that, was, that wasn't a very nice story. Thank you so much for 
you know, doing that to me for 15 minutes and, you know, leaving me hanging there. Now, I agree, it breaks my heart because that's not, that's not the way that things are supposed to end. I'm, I'm like more of a Disney ending kind of guy, you know, where everybody hugs and kisses and we, they live happily ever after, you know. Uh, Lucky Luke where they ride into the sunset. That's my kind of ending, you know. This isn't quite the ending I was hoping for. But it's extremely important for us to learn from this because there's a lot for us to learn from this. Romans 8 and verse 17 says, Since we are his children, we are his heirs. This is speaking about God. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. What legacy do we get to, to leave? The glory of God. But we stand before a choice on a daily basis. Will we leave glory or will we just leave a legacy of ourselves? We are royalty. Royalty through Christ. We are heirs of God. We get to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we are supposed to leave as a legacy, isn't it? But the question this morning is, will my, will my legacy be a pitfall to those coming after me? Will my legacy be a platform so that at least they kind of have an idea where to go? Or will my legacy be a springboard into the future, a springboard into faith with God and a future that God has for them? Or do, they, do we leave them kind of wondering you know, yes, what did they do again? I don't know. Yes, well, at, least, at least we know that that's, that's trouble and that's trouble over there. And, or do we get them to come to a place where they get to jump into the future that God has for them and not figure things out for themselves? And I'm saying this not just as a father to, to the next generation, his son. I'm saying that as one person leading just another person to faith in Christ. Do I leave that guy with the taste of me? Or do I leave that guy with the glory of God in everything I do? And it takes courageous action of the godly kind over and over and over to leave that kind of legacy in everything that we do. I said this, pitfalls says, at least it went okay in my lifetime. We focus on our pride we're okay with injustice. We're okay with division. And we get hung up on our selfishness. And that's dangerous. Or do we leave a platform where people can look down into the chasm of what could and should and maybe be, and at least they have some sort of idea of that's bad, this is good, that's how we're going to make our decisions from now on. Going, well, that was close, we could have fallen into that trap but at least we didn't. But leaving other folks, figuring it out for themselves, I don't know if that's what God's calling us to do. I think he wants us to create this point of departure for those following us. To give them a springboard into faith and courage with God. And if we live by courageous action, we can leave that kind of legacy. Matthew 6, from verse 20 to 21, says, store your, store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy them, and thieves cannot break in and steal it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Now, I know 
that Jesus is speaking about money here. But Jesus leaves us with, what is the most important thing that you can do? Love God, love others, and teach those others to love God and love others so that they can teach those others to love God and love others. And so if our focus is God and people, then our our treasure is in the right place. And we are storing up treasure in heaven that moth cannot destroy and rust can't get to. And that's the only thing we get to take with us one day. My fancy motorbike doesn't go with. It doesn't really matter in heaven. I love, I was told this story years ago. A guy gets to heaven and um, he has this big backpack on. And um, gets to Peter and says, hey, you know, am I, am I in the book? He's like, yes, you're in the book, but the backpack has to stay. He's like, no, you don't understand. This is the most important thing that I have. He's like, no, 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 the backpack has to stay. That's the rules. Read the disclaimer. Read the small print. You come, the stuff stays. The guy's like, you don't understand. You have to go and speak to, like, who's your supervisor? Go and speak to them. I need the backpack. So they go, they speak to the supervisor, and you know, they get back to him. They're like, sorry, dude, the backpack has to stay. She's like, you don't understand, I have to. He's like, what's in the backpack? So he opens up, and it's these bars of solid gold. And the guy's like, pavement, pavement. You had me walking all those stairs for pavement. <laughs> all right, because the streets of heaven is paved in, in gold. Okay, that's the story. But that's the point here. We take people with us. We take souls with us. We don't get to take pavement. It's already paved. They don't need earth's gold. It's that simple. As the band comes up, we need to leave a legacy of faith. We need to leave a legacy that's a springboard into faith with Christ in the future. Ephesians 4, verses 12 and 13 says, their responsibility is to equip God's people. Who's the there they're speaking of here? Is the people of the church. The people God has given gifts to build this church. That's the there. So it's all of us. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all... um, Sorry, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ, saying the point is to leave a legacy. What legacy? A grounding in Christ, a springboard into a future of faith. Are we leaving that with the people we deal with? Are we, are we leaving that with the petrol attendant, with the folks at work, with our friends, with our families, with our social circles? We're all leading someone. You're like, no, I'm a stay-at-home mom. It's like, yes, you're leading a family. I am just this. Yes, you are leading whoever. But God has put all of us into some sort of leadership role where there's just someone behind you looking at you going, how did they do that? How did they do that? Why are they doing this? And what are we leaving them with is the question this morning. It takes a courageous life 
filled with courageous action to leave a godly legacy. And when we paint in broad strokes, it's as simple as saying, love God, love others, and teach those others to love God and love others. We sang a song this morning that that helps us quite a bit. And at the risk of singing it to death on the first morning, I think we need to sing it again. Because my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear of the future, my fear of not leaving a godly legacy, because that's the one thing that will probably keep us from doing it. My fear of being seen as a certain kind of person. My fear of being mistaken for who I'm not. So this morning, as a cry of our hearts, can I ask that we sing it one more time? And we'll bless you and we send you home. Thank you so much.